From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Great American Outdoors Act becomes law, injecting a surge of money into our public lands. It sets up a national park and public lands legacy restoration fund that provides about $9.5 billion over the next five years to fix the national park's deferred maintenance problem. Also, outdoor air pollution can affect the productivity of workers inside buildings. Outdoor air pollution penetrates indoors. And because we spend so much time of our lives indoors, even if that outdoor air pollution is reduced as it comes inside, the majority of your exposure to outdoor air pollution can occur indoors. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On the very last day he could sign the Great American Outdoors Act before it would automatically become law without his signature, on August 4th, President Trump put his pen to one of the biggest bipartisan legislative victories in these times. But the story begins back in April of 2019, when the late civil rights leader and Georgia Democratic Congressman John Lewis originally introduced this multi-billion dollar measure. It addresses years of backlogged expenses for buildings and roads in the national park system. It also guarantees that every year, close to a billion dollars will be available for conservation and maintenance of public spaces at the federal, state, and local levels. This June, the Senate finally agreed with 73 senators voting in favor. When 310 members of the House voted to accept some Senate amendments on July 22nd, the measure passed with a veto-proof majority. Living on Earth's Paloma Beltran has more. Republican Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado set the tone in the East Room of the White House during the presidential signing ceremony for the Great American Outdoors Act. It was 127 years ago, Mr. President, in 1893, that Catherine Lee Bates climbed atop Pikes Peak. And she looked across the, the plains and mountains of Colorado and wrote the words to America the Beautiful. 127 years later, we passed the Great American Outdoors Act, which will truly protect and provide opportunities for all America to enjoy those wonders of this country that Catherine Lee Bates wrote about then. This is a remarkable opportunity to celebrate in the midst of acrimony, in the midst of partisanship, in the midst of times when the American people probably look out and wonder if they can get anything done. Congress came together to pass the most significant bill, the Great American Outdoors Act, in over 50 years with the largest infusion of funding this country has ever seen. Despite the bipartisan coalition that got the Great American Outdoors Act through Congress, no Democrats were on the list of speakers invited by President Trump. The legislation I'm signing today builds on my administration's unwavering commitment to conserving and the grandeur and the splendor of God's creation. This is truly God's creation. But the president struggled with some of the names of the parks. We want every American child to have access to pristine outdoor spaces. When young Americans experience the breathtaking beauty of the Grand Canyon, when their eyes widen in amazement as old faithful bursts into the sky, when they gaze upon Yosemites, Yosemites, towering sequoias, their love of country grows stronger and they know that every American has truly a duty to preserve this wondrous inheritance. 
And that's what they're doing, and that's what we're doing. We're preserving an incredible inheritance. Vice President Pence spoke of his familiarity with the national parks under Interior Secretary David Bernhardt. Mrs. Pence and I uh, spent a lot of time loading our kids in the minivans, driving out. We visited almost every major national park. That was the Pence family vacation. And uh, I'm proud to say, uh, as an early installment of, uh, of this incredible investment in maintenance, Secretary Bernhardt uh, had the Pence's actually pounding nails and uh, rebuilding the boardwalk at Old Faithful just last year. The American people know we have the best national parks in the world. The truth is, under the last administration, we saw a backlog of maintenance. For all the talk about the environment, we saw projects uh, left aside and ignored. Literally $20 billion of work left to be done. I know you'll be happy to know that this will also, uh, we believe, create more than 110,000 infrastructure jobs. As we improve our national parks, we're putting Americans back to work. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi invited Democratic members of Congress to an enrollment ceremony outside by the Capitol Plaza. Raul Grijalva of Arizona and chair of the House Committee on Natural Resources joined her. The, the set aside for Indian country to, to address the urgent maintenance and upkeep needs in Indian schools across Indian country uh, is also part of this legislation that was not noted enough. Let me just say it is historic, but it's very, very meaningful. My grandbabies will be able to look back and say, you know, Tata did a good thing once. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Joe Cunningham, a freshman from South Carolina, also took the podium. And we showed the American people that despite an ongoing global pandemic and a divided government, we can still come together, legislate, and pass the most comprehensive conservation package of our lifetime. And, you know, there's an old saying that we did not inherit this planet from our parents, but it's on loan to us by our children. And tomorrow I look forward to flying home and being with my two-year-old son, Boone, and taking him to Waterfront Park in downtown Charleston or Pitt Street Bridge, places, green spaces, made possible by the Land Water Conservation Fund. Look forward to him passing those green spaces and more on to his children and future generations to come. At the end of the day, I think that's what we're all here for. And just before she took a pen to formally enroll the passage of the Great American Outdoors Act, Speaker Nancy Pelosi echoed the sentiments of many. Let me also acknowledge our friends in the environmental community and across the country who've taken an interest in all of this for a very, very long time. So with that now, and with great pride and excitement for not only Joe Cunningham's little baby, but this is what it's about, the future, our children, but for all of America's children. Funds enacted by the Great American Outdoors Act should be available in the next fiscal year, which begins in October. For Living on Earth, I'm Paloma Beltran. Despite the celebratory tone both on Capitol Hill and at the White House, a number of environmental advocates did not want to give so much credit to the Trump administration with its record of rolling back more than 70 environmental regulations. These critics include Linda Bilmes, who served in both the Clinton and Obama administrations. Now a senior lecturer at Harvard's Kennedy School, she's written about the unmet needs of the parks and the economic benefits they provide. Steve, I think one of the great ironies is that a man who has been the worst 
president for the environment and for conservation, certainly in my lifetime, gets to have his name on the most important piece of conservation legislation in 50 years. I mean, this is a man who has, you know, rolled back protections for national monuments, who has slashed uh, Bear Ears National Monument by 80% and, and Grand Staircase Escalante, who has weakened the Endangered Species Act and watershed protections and a wide swath of environmental rules and regulations, and who has in particular opened oil and gas drilling across most of U.S. coastal waters. He also, ironically, just as recently as February, tried to slash the discretionary funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund by 97%. And yet, such is the craziness of this pandemic and FY2020 that this president will have his name on this very important piece of legislation. It is irony, but I think we have to accept that it's a bit of a silver lining of the strange times that we live in. I asked Linda Bilmos to outline the provisions of the landmark legislation. The Great American Outdoors Act has two main parts. First of all, it sets up a national park and public lands legacy restoration fund that provides about $9.5 billion over the next five years to fix the National Park's deferred maintenance problem. And it devotes about $6.5 billion, $1.3 billion per year to the National Park's maintenance backlog. It also provides about $3 billion to other public lands, such as national forests and wildlife refuges and other federal lands. And talk to me now about the second part of this, this Land and Water Conservation Fund. Why is this conservation fund so important, and and what was its financing for it before? So the Land and Water Conservation Fund was created in 1964, and it's actually a very wonderful and simple idea, which is to take some of the royalties from oil and gas drilling on federal lands in federal waters and set them aside for conservation of land and waters around the United States, both to the national parks and other federal land agencies, and importantly, to state and local parks who can apply for matching grants. Now, it is authorized for up to $900 million a year, which means that's the amount that is actually taken from oil and gas leasing royalties. But in the past, Congress has only appropriated a small fraction of that amount, in some years a very, very small fraction, to actual land and water conservation. So what this bill will do is it will mandate in perpetuity that the full $900 million a year goes to the intended purpose, which is conservation on local, state, and federal lands and waters. So this is a bit of inside Washington speak, the difference between an appropriation and an authorization. Authorization says, okay, you guys could do this, but appropriation pushes the cash register to go ka-ching. A question, though, over the near term, then, funding is dependent on fossil fuels. Those markets have been fairly volatile. At what risk is the government of not getting the royalties necessary to support this program? I think the risk is very low because compared to the overall sums of money involved in oil and gas 
uh, royalties, $900 million a year, although it seems like a fair amount of money. I mean, that really is a small fraction of the overall take. You know, the National Parks depends on a variety of funding streams, user fees, appropriations, land and water conservation fund, money, philanthropy. And this stream is quite variable, quite volatile. So the amount of money that is available for any individual park year to year is volatile. And one of the things that makes managing the national parks very challenging is dealing with this volatile stream of funding. So this at least guarantees that there is a certain amount of funding over the next five years for maintenance and repairs and a certain amount of reliable money through the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So this was a bipartisan vote. The bill passed the Senate with a 73-25 vote, and then the House agreed to the Senate version with a 310-107 to vote. What do you think was the magic sauce here? How did this act bring together Democrats and Republicans? Well, I think we can thank the very unusual circumstances created by the pandemic, in which three factors, the politics, the economics, and the public opinion converged. Um, First of all, politically, there has been a fair amount of bipartisan support for the national parks and for conservation for many years. However, the particular secret sauce this time was that a number of members of Congress from endangered seats in the West, particularly Senator Steve Daines of Montana and Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado, who are facing very stiff challenges from popular Democrats in those states, they championed this and had a meeting with President Trump in which they said, this is a must-have. You've got to sign this piece of legislation, which has bipartisan support that we are lining up, in order for us to have any chance of retaining these Senate seats and for the Republicans having a chance of retaining the Senate. So this became a critical political requirement for the Republican majority and for the majority leader, as well as for a number of senators and congressmen from both parties who have been long champions of the national parks. Secondly, the economics of this Great American Outdoors Act is that it will create at least 100,000 good jobs in maintaining and repairing sites. So this was very appealing in the current environment. So it's documented that communities of color and Latinx communities aren't seen in the national parks and other public lands at the same rate as, as white folk. Why is that? There are a couple of factors that explain why there is a overrepresentation of white people in the national park. But the, the biggest factor is that the average age of a national park visitor is 63, and the country was less diverse at that time. A second issue is that the national parks have been, at least up until perhaps 20 years ago, they have not been telling everyone's American story. And over the last decade, the national parks have made a very concerted effort, and I think a great deal of progress, toward telling the story of all Americans. Professor Linda Belmus is a senior lecturer in public policy and public finance at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you so much. This is such a wonderful program. 
If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's that time of the program when we take a look beyond the headlines with our intrepid guide, Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. On the line now from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey there, Peter. How you doing? And what do you have for us today? Well, hi, Steve. You know, if cable TV can have Shark Week, I think Living on Earth ought to have Irony Week. And I've got two giant ones to talk us through today. Okay, hit me with them. British American Tobacco. The makers of Lucky Strike is pursuing a tobacco-based COVID-19 vaccine. They'll take a weakened form of coronavirus using tobacco as the medium, turn it into a vaccine. Other companies like Philip Morris are also pursuing this. British American Tobacco has petitioned the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. They're awaiting an answer to start clinical trials. And... Um, They've tried this before with Ebola, with more conventional forms of the flu, with very limited results, if any. They're trying again to turn tobacco into a limited version of a hero if it can do anything to help arrest coronavirus. Well, tobacco certainly killed a whole bunch of people, so maybe it might be able to redeem itself this way. What else do you have for us today, Peter? Irony number two, and I love this one. There's a glacier in the Falbard Archipelago. That's in the the Arctic part of Norway. Land temperatures were 71 degrees in recent weeks there. And it's melting so quickly that it has flooded and ruined Norway's last functioning coal mine. (laughs) you got to be kidding. Yeah, you are talking about an irony. Coal responsible for climate disruption is getting rinsed out of the business by a melting glacier. Is this true, Peter? Come on, you can tell me. Uh, This is the revenge of climate change. This last coal mine in Norway feeds the last coal-burning power plant in Norway. It is out of business now, probably forever, flooded by the glacier that covers the mountain that is above the coal mine. So, as you're fond of saying, indeed, in this case, nature does bat last, huh? Does indeed. Okay, history time, Peter. We're in August. What do you see going back in the years? Well, with August 6th, of course, we're seeing commemorations of the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima, three days later, the bombing of Nagasaki, deaths in six figures from those two, an end to World War II, and just a heart-stopping moment in history to hope that we never, ever use those bombs again. But here's what happened a year to the day after Hiroshima. General Douglas MacArthur was the military governor of Japan, trying to find ways to peacefully get this shattered nation back on its feet. And a year to the day after Hiroshima, General MacArthur authorized the creation of two industrial-scale whaling fleets to help Japan bring in some cash and get back on its feet. So what kind of uh, business did this turn out to be? Turned out to be a booming business, obviously a very deadly one for whales. More than two fleets operated in Japan over the next four decades into the 1980s, a little bit beyond. And they wiped out hundreds of thousands of whales. 
bringing several species that were not yet endangered to the brink of extinction. The International Whaling Commission finally banned industrial whaling in the 1980s. Many whale species have yet to recover, and Japan still does smaller-scale whaling under the bogus guise of scientific research. So, Peter, we were talking about irony earlier. Is there any irony in this case? There's plenty of irony, of course. The tsunami that devastated big part of Japan north of Tokyo that caused the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear plant also devastated a whaling port called Ayukama, one of the few whaling ports active in Japan. It took out a big chunk of what was left of the whaling industry in a way that it will probably never recover from. Thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories on the Living on Earth website. That's loe.org. Ecuador is on alert after its navy discovered a fleet of more than 200 Chinese fishing vessels near the Galapagos Islands. This famous archipelago that helped inspire Charles Darwin's theory of evolution is home to the second-largest marine reserve in the world. Now Ecuadorian officials worry that the Chinese fleet poses a danger to those ecosystems by snagging fish that wander out of the formal boundaries of the marine reserve. Yolanda Kakavatse is the former Minister of the Environment of Ecuador, and she spoke with Living on Earth's Ainsley O'Neill. So, Yolanda, what is the situation right now off the coast of the Galapagos Islands? It's a very delicate and concerning reality for Ecuador. There are more than 260 fishing ships just on the border of the economic zone of Ecuador that surrounds the Galapagos Marine Reserve and also is off the coast of uh, continental Ecuador. Well, I've actually been lucky enough to spend some time in the Galapagos, and really it was luck because those are incredible places. All of those islands, well, all the ones that I visited, were gorgeous and stunning and so crucial. Could you tell us a little bit about the geography, about the ecosystem, about the wonder that is the Galapagos? I wonder if I can speak a lot about it because all I have is amazement. The first time I went to Galapagos, which was about 50 years or 55 years ago, the sense for the first time in my life that I was another species. Humans in the Galapagos aren't not on one side of the court and the species, the animal in the other side of the court. We are just one. And the sense of being another species and being responsible for the care of Galapagos becomes a driving force. Probably that's when I decided to start working on on conservation and environment in my life. So lots of us know about the Galapagos, let's say, from Charles Darwin or from a documentary, but what makes them such an important place for Ecuador and the marine environment in general? To start giving a global vision 
oceans are the ecosystems of the world that are most threatened. Overfishing, it has become the garbage site of uh, plastics of the world. Global change, climate change is affecting uh, oceans. So it is an ecosystem that needs a lot of attention from uh, global leaders and all countries around the world. In the specifics, uh, Galapagos is is the jewel of the crown of this planet. It is a site that not only hosts the most incredible species that are not found in other parts of the world, but it's also a nesting place. It is a place that reproduces several species that guarantee in the medium and long term the food security that this planet deserves and and needs. So it is a site that needs protection. Ecuador has been taking care of the Galapagos protection for um, six, seven decades. So it is a place that we have tried to preserve as a science spot, as a conservation marine protected area that needs to be protected in order to continue its life forever after. It cannot be threatened as it is now. And already fishing practices and uh, climate change are affecting the species. So it is not as intact as it was 50 years ago. You can already see that birds and uh, and marine species are behaving differently and are not as they were several decades ago. And now there's this massive fishing fleet just outside of the exclusive economic zone. What does that mean for the ecosystem? What kind of impact does that have on such a sensitive marine habitat? Well, the fishing sector as a whole has to develop even stricter guidelines for fishing. And what we see is that not every fishing fleet or every country has adopted the criteria that is absolutely necessary to control, that we keep on having fish forever after. There are several countries that fish in the wrong season, with the wrong tools, at the wrong size. And what does that mean? That we are not giving the species the necessary time to grow, um, to reproduce, and to continue in the same numbers that we used to have. So what we do have in the the Galapagos, on the edge of the Galapagos and the equatorial economic zone, is such an enormous fleet that it is the size of it that is already a threat. We do hope that um, the negotiations between Ecuador and China that are being held now will allow Ecuador to have more clarity on what's going on in those fish and, and hopefully some Ecuadorian observers can visit those ships in order to ensure that uh, tools and size and amount of fish that is being taken from those seas are the correct ones. But we all know that the fish know no frontiers. They don't have frontiers. They are migratory species that move in and out of the equatorial economic zone, in and out of the marine reserve. So that is the greatest risk, that that it is not for humans to control that movement, it is for humans to protect them when they move. Well, could you tell us a little bit more about those international negotiations? 
what is happening now is that the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ecuador, who has long experience in international negotiations, is uh, talking to the Chinese government to see how the government can collaborate in the protection of the Galapagos. And the, one of my points here is that we are holding the next conference of the parties of biodiversity convention in China. And so that means that China is surely intending to protect its uh, image and protect its interests in being one of the strongest partners of the Convention of Biodiversity, not only within China, but around the world. So that is a plus in every sense. And as we know, China has done good things for environment and conservation in China. One cannot deny those efforts. So my hope is that China becomes a partner of Ecuador and uh, protects, uh, helps us in the protection efforts of the Galapagos and the economic zone of Ecuador and in the global marine resources as a whole. The Ecuadorian government is taking steps to prevent situations like this in the future. Am I correct in saying that? Absolutely. Um, we are working here in Ecuador on other fronts. And that means that we are speaking to the other countries of the South Pacific coast, Chile, Peru, Colombia, because all of us are facing the same challenges. And I think we all need to have a common strategy. And that is one of the roles that the Ecuadorian government is playing right now in talking to these other countries in order to see that we react uh, with the same uh, policies and the same strategies. The other front in which Ecuador is working very hard is in the creation of a marine protected corridor between Ecuador and Costa Rica. Costa Rica is protecting the islands of Cocos and we are protecting the islands of Galapagos and they are neighbors. The protected areas of Cocos and Galapagos touch on each other and we need to formalize that, the existence of that corridor. Up to now, we have been protecting the two areas and talking to each other for some years about the importance of uh, creating a, a formal corridor. And that will happen in, in the next few weeks. So in this decade, where we want to have 30% of the marine areas of the world protected by 2030, it is a beautiful challenge to meet. And it is a wonderful opportunity to discuss and agree with other countries around the world which other marine areas need to be protected. The moment that sharks and whales and uh, other marine species feel threatened, that relation will be broken. And I think we cannot afford that. The pandemic that we are living today is just a demonstration that that pact is being broken. And in the case of the Galapagos, that should be the last place on earth to be affected by irresponsible actions of any sort. Tourism needs to be sustainable, fishing needs to be sustainable, and any other economic activity, if we want to survive. Yolanda Kakavatse is the former Minister of the Environment of Ecuador, speaking with Living on Earth's Ainsley O'Neill.
We are in the hot dog days of summer here in the Northern Hemisphere, but as Bird Notes' Michael Stein reports for desert birds, the searing heat is no problem. In the desert southwest, summer temperatures sizzle, rising well over 100 degrees. And in some parts of the desert, there is not a drop of water for miles. Yet some birds thrive in this scorching landscape. Here, a black-throated sparrow sings from the thorn scrub. Now, a cactus wren announces itself atop a barrel cactus. And neither will be flying miles every day to the nearest source of water. So how do they survive? Birds, like all animals, perish without water. Desert birds, however, make the most of very little. They tuck into the shade in the heat of the day, so they won't lose water in panting. They have extremely efficient kidneys, so they excrete almost no liquid. And they obtain moisture from foods, like nectar and fruit, as well as insects and other prey. Even when eating primarily seeds, black-throated sparrows are able to extract enough water from this dry food that they may never need to take a drink. Still, when that next late summer thunderstorm arrives, you have to think those temporary puddles are going to look mighty refreshing. I'm Michael Stein. For pictures, fly on over to the Living on Earth website, LOE.org. Coming up, trying to tap into the scavenging instincts of crows to help clean up our cities. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. People working from home amid the coronavirus pandemic may actually be working in a safer, healthier environment. Many offices do not have the best air quality, and studies show that fresher, cleaner air can improve efficiency in workers. If people have more choice to open windows when they work at home, they might do better with their jobs, despite possible distractions from toddlers, teens, and television. And getting fresher and cleaner air for offices can mean lower expenses and more net income for businesses. That's according to Joe Allen. He directs the Healthy Buildings program at Harvard University and author of the book Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity. Joe Allen joined us for an online Goodreads on Earth event, and I asked about his research that correlates building health, air quality, and cognitive function. We have this study known as the CogEffect study for cognitive function, where all we did was we took knowledge workers, architects, designers, had them do their normal work routine in a highly controlled environment, and take a cognitive function test at the end of the day after working all day with us. What they didn't know is we changed the air they were breathing in really subtle ways. And it turns out that just changing the air quality, a handful of factors, was enough to change their 
cognitive function performance, their higher order decision-making performance in domains that really matter for business, like information seeking and usage, crisis response, strategy, controlling for their individual performance, baseline, education. And so controlling for all of these other factors, the building factor in that building signal came through in a double-blinded study. And with John McComber, we make that not leap, we make the argument compellingly and convincingly, I think, that building performance influences human performance, influences business performance. So the entire value proposition is wrapped up right there. And if you invest a little bit in the building, it pays dividends all the way right to the bottom line of the company. Let's talk a little bit in detail about the, the research, how you got these results. People were tested against themselves. That is, uh, their ability to perform at, under different concentrations of what kind of pollutants? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we changed just three variables. One is ventilation rate, or really how much fresh outdoor air is coming in. Second variable is carbon dioxide. So indoors, humans are the biggest source of carbon dioxide. And third, exposure to common chemicals called VOCs, volatile organic compounds that off-gas from carpets, from deodorant, from surface cleaners, from newly cut wood products, from dry cleaning. And so the idea here is we tested levels that people are exposed to all the time. And for ventilation, all we do is say, what's this minimum level that most buildings are designed to? What happens if you increase that? What's the benefit? And by the way, the levels that people are exposed to are all perfectly legal, right? The worst air quality they were subject to was still within various codes and laws, if I understand correctly. Yeah, I'll put some numbers to it. So indoors, if you're meeting this minimum ventilation standard, which is not, we can talk about this uh, in depth, but this carbon dioxide level should be about 900 to 1,000 parts per million. And for reference to ground everybody, outdoor CO2, you know, 400 and rising uh, too fast. Well, in schools, 1,500 parts per million. In airplanes, we've measured this 1,500 parts per million up to 2,500 parts per million. But to your point about what's legal, the occupational exposure limits, the limits we allow for workers start at 5,000 parts per million. Point is, all of these levels, we, and we tested 1,000 parts per million. We tested a level that nearly all of us are exposed to all of the time in your car, in your home, schools. And, you know, not even half of what the current allowable limit is. So we didn't even approach a level that would be even remotely considered dangerous. In fact, it's probably close to that level in the room I'm in right now. And so the key point, I'm glad you brought it up, is that, you know, we didn't test exotic conditions. We didn't test some weird chemical exposure. We didn't test some crazy ventilation scenario. We tested conditions that nearly every building can achieve, right? That every building can achieve these things. A little bit of love on these buildings, just a little bit, can have these dramatic improvements, even beyond infectious disease transmission, headaches, and, and these other symptoms, but actually how well you think. Gee, I might ask smarter questions than if I went over and opened the window, huh? <laughs> Your window must be <laughs> wide open. <laughs> so... Then the other part of this equation, though, is, is that you turn this increased productivity, this ability to think smarter, into, well, into dollars and, and, and cents, that it's literally worth money to people. Talk to me about that part. Yeah, so in our work in the Cog Effects study, first thing we did, we knew we'd get this question, well, these improvements must cost something. And sure, we modeled this out across the United States. We find the cost for higher ventilation, let's say, is on the order of 40 U.S. dollars per person per year. That's normally where the analysis stops because people say, well, that's a real expense. And I'm the facilities manager. That's my job. You know, I, I got to cut costs there. But when we factored in the productivity benefits, we estimate the benefits are on the order of six to $7,000 per person. 
right? Orders of magnitude bigger. Anyway, you model it, once you include health in that equation, it overwhelms any of these costs that really are, are downright trivial at that point. It says from your study that people literally, in some cases, perform twice as well on some of these tests if they had better ventilation. But then you also write that it's hard in today's environment to go ahead and capture this, say, six or $7,000 worth more of productivity because there are so many split incentives. I mean, in other words, why might a building owner or manager make these improvements if the benefits which gain uh, in worker health and productivity flow to the tenant? Yeah, you know, this is the real crux of it. If the equation's so obvious, why isn't it happening? Well, you hit on it. There's these split incentive issues. There's this issue that, right, so I'm the building owner. Am I going to make an improvement? If you're the company that comes in, you get the benefit. But we make the case in the book that we think there's enough win to be had that it can be shared. The owner of the building can charge a premium for it. The tenant organization gets a better building and also gets more productive employees. So there's enough of a win. We're not talking about fine margins here, right? We're talking about orders of magnitude benefit and their shared wins to be had. Joe, in your book, you start by mentioning the majority of our exposure to outdoor air actually occurs indoors. Walk us through that, please. Yes. Yeah, so in the book, we talk about what we call the dirty secret of outdoor air pollution. And most people don't know this, right? That the outdoor air pollution penetrates indoors. And because we spend so much time of our lives indoors, even if that outdoor air pollution is reduced as it comes inside, the majority of your exposure to outdoor air pollution can occur indoors. I think people find that entirely shocking. In fact, I challenge anybody to send me a news article where there's a discussion of outdoor air pollution and they talk about this dirty secret of indoor air pollution. Every article you'll see will show a picture, maybe uh, a mom walking with her daughter and they're wearing masks and they're outdoors in a polluted city, right? Never once are they on their couch and that's where they're breathing in a lot of this dirty outdoor air pollution. So uh, it's not talked about and it shows the importance, again, of the indoor environment. And importantly, in well-managed buildings, you can reduce the amount of air pollution, outdoor air pollution that penetrates indoors and you can break that dirty secret. Uh, and you also point out that we spend a lot of time indoors. Yeah. So like it or not, we're an indoor species, Steve. And uh, uh, people don't like to hear that, but we spend 90% of our time indoors. So I'm 44. That means my indoor age is 40. I spent 40 years of my life indoors. And we think about it that way, it becomes really obvious that the indoor environment has this major impact on our health. But if I asked you or anybody else in the audience, you know, Steve, what does it take to lead a healthy life? You would tell me, well, Joe, I have to exercise today. I know that. I know what I should eat for dinner, a healthy meal. You know, fish is good. I got to limit some other things. And you would tell me outdoor air pollution is bad. I don't think you or many other people would turn to the indoor environment right away and say, oh, you know what? I know the first thing I need to do is take care of the space that's around me. And so it's this glaring hole in our understanding of what it means to live a healthy life. The glaring hole is the indoor environment, the place we spend all of our time. Now, for decades, the environmental movement has focused on outdoor air pollution and focused on having green buildings that, that have energy efficiency. But what is the difference now between the healthy building movement and the green building movement? And where is it headed? Yeah, so the green building movement's been around for you know over 20 years, uh, really took off in the mid-aughts or so. But it's largely a movement focused on uh, energy, waste, and water, critically important, resource conservation, 
with a little nod towards maybe the basics of indoor air quality, indoor air quality 101, I'd say, in green buildings. But it's been wildly successful, right? It has changed codes and practices and behaviors. Everyone or many people have seen, let's say, a lead plaque on a building as you walk in announcing its energy efficiency credentials. But that movement is now shifting to one as people start to recognize this 90% we're talking about in our book, that healthy buildings, we have to have green energy efficient buildings that are also healthy buildings for the, for the human performance. And so this transition is underway and these new healthy building movement focuses on all of these factors that go beyond indoor air quality 101. You know, my healthy buildings program at Harvard releases what we call the nine foundations of a healthy building. And so we get beyond indoor air quality 101. We're thinking about ventilation, air quality, lighting, biophilic design, dust and pests, water quality, acoustics, all of these factors that we know influence health that go beyond what green building rating systems can do. So this is the, the next version of that. And the market is hungry for it and ready for it and looking for the science that says, what should I do in my building? And then how do I objectively verify and monitor that that's happening and leading to these gains? Joe Allen is director of the Healthy Buildings Program at Harvard and author of the book, Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity. The animal species that share our cities and suburbs and are able to adapt to living near humans are often called pests. Crows are often noisy and sometimes annoying, but they are among the smartest birds. So some crow entrepreneurs are looking at ways to train them to actually help clean up our city streets. Living on Earth's Isaac Merson has our story. Six crows circle, deep black, against the bright sky. One flies lower, lands, cocks her head, and dips her bill to snatch up a cigarette butt, a tiny piece of plastic litter containing as many as 250 toxic chemicals. The crow flies to an intricate mahogany box and deposits the cigarette butt. Her trainer pulls a drawer out with a tasty treat inside. The crow scarfs her snack and takes to the skies in search of more treasured trash. Our heroine is one of six rooks trained by Christophe Gabarit at the Puy de Fou theme park in France to pick up litter in return for a delicious snack. This winged troop swoops and scoops, black eyes full of glee and trickery. Think of the possibilities this suggests. A corvid army of crows cleaning our streets collecting loose change, sorting our recycling, spit-shining our sidewalks. We know that crows are smart. They learn from one another and can even pass knowledge down from one generation to the next. They make and use tools including busy roadways to crack walnuts. And some large-billed crows in Japan have been found building indestructible nests from discarded coat hangers. In a TED Talk, Technologist Josh Klein talked about the idea that crows might be convinced to help clean up the messes that we make. I think that crows can be trained to do other things. For example, why not train them to pick up garbage after stadium events or find expensive components from discarded electronics? And the internet is chock full of wild speculation about the future possibilities suggested by the staged presentations in France. One Dutch startup called Crowded Cities spent several years developing a combination trash can 
an automatic food dispenser called the crow bar, which would reward wild crows with peanuts or food pellets upon successful deposit of a cigarette filter. But research suggests wild crows probably don't want to do our dirty work for peanuts. In fact, not one single experiment with wild crows has been able to document a desire to trade trash for rewards. According to Corvid expert Dr. Jennifer Campbell-Smith, any kind of training like this would most likely only work with captive crows, who are receptive to training primarily because they get bored and want to play. Uh, These are animals that don't have to worry about where their next meal comes from. They don't really have to worry about predators. So they get bored, they need cognitive stimulation, and they're quite open to training. Wild crows are a generalist forager that is having to look out for predators, that is having to worry about where its next meal comes from. And honestly, it has easy access to food from sidewalks, dumpsters, landfills. Honestly, there's plenty of insects in the grass. Peanuts and food pellets really wouldn't justify the time and risk that they would have to give up in order to clean up trash for us. So perhaps wild crows aren't the street cleaners of tomorrow. Perhaps we need to find ways to coexist by thinking less like a human and more like a crow. After all, there's no getting away from our fellow intelligent generalists. They're already using humans to supply a lot of their food, taking free lunch from landfills, road kills, and takeout spills, and using the trees we plant in our suburbs for shelter. When we look at a crow and see an opportunity to exploit, the crow is looking right back at us. And if we think like a crow, we may stand to benefit. Healthy relationships between humans and corvids exist and have for a long time. Alaskan Athabascan and Inupiaq peoples follow the gurgling calls of ravens to find game and leave the carcass for the raven in return. And that's something to crow about. For Living on Earth, I'm Isaac Merson. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Ann Flaherty, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Corey Suzuki, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lerestein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. PRX.